Some of you know that my, my father is a retired politician in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, I, don't, I won't go into it because if I get into it, I won't stop. Uh, but it's going through very, very difficult, unprecedented, crazy times. And my, my father's been retired for 10 years now, I think. And, but he, he will, because it's crazy times, people who recognize him will stop him on the streets and be like, uh, his, his nickname is uh, Uncle Fat, anyway. Uncle Fat, not, not, not like fat as in he's fat, but fat as in that's what his Chinese name sounds like. Uncle Fat, please come back and, and do something. You know, fix our city. And, and, you know, on one hand, it's flattering that someone would ask him that to come back and do something. And yet it breaks his heart because he knows, even if he did come back, there's little that he could do uh, to change the, the dynamic that's going on in Hong Kong. I mean, it's a, it's a battle between democracy and communism, essentially, right? And so, you know, I've watched my father as a politician, uh, you know, live a life of the politician, of having to make promises. Some promises he was good to fulfill, and many others he either couldn't wouldn't, did not have the power to fulfill. And that's something that every politician has to live with, every pastor has to live with even, but not even, we don't have to make the same kind of promises that a politician does. And that does something to a man, and I see that way on my father, especially um, at the, at, you know, really as he reflects back on a career. And it brings up this question, I think, as we look at life in a broken world, we long for justice, um, and we hear these promises from God that he is a just God, that he will bring justice, and yet we live in a broken world, and we, we, we wrestle with what feels like the disconnect between who God says he is and what life is like in this world. Um, the big difference, though, of course, is you know, my father was a finite broken human being, and he was limited truly in what he could do. And as we look at in the world and we see injustices and we ask God, God, why aren't you doing anything about it? The answer is not because God is limited in his power or unwilling or doesn't care or is broken in some way. God gives much different reasons in Habakkuk and other places of scripture to answer this question of why does injustice still exist in this world? And yet, in many ways, it comes down to us. How will we receive his answers? And often we quite insist on standing in judgment of God. Yes, God dignifies our doubts and questions, and yet when he answers, how will we respond? And that's really what we come to in today's text. God, again, is answering a complaint that Habakkuk brings on behalf of himself and I think all of us. And you heard some of it read earlier. But I'm going to give you the main point from the beginning, and hopefully you'll see it come out as we go through the text. But the main point is this. God hates injustice and loves justice, so let's trust him in his character, timing, method, and glory. God hates injustice and loves justice, so let's trust him in his character, timing, method, and glory. Okay, last week we looked at this question. Uh, not last week, week one, we looked at this question that Habakkuk brought. God, are you listening? Do you care? Will you act? And we see God answer that he will, bring in, he will bring justice, but in an unexpected way, and that we should be scared to ask 
for God to bring justice right now. And to remember that with these questions, we must always start at the cross. We have the privilege of starting at the cross where we see God's love and justice kiss where they meet. On the second week of this series, we looked at this question that Habakkuk asked, God, why are you unjust? And we talked about how we, we, we can't stand in judgment of God because we can't comprehend what it is to run the universe, to take into account all that is going on, and yet still to bring justice and to work out all things for the good of those who love him. And that we are called with this basic question, as we live in a broken world, to wait upon God even in the darkest times because he will answer. And so again, we, we come to his answer today. And then what is this answer that he brings? And in essence, his answer is, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's take a look at this. And we're going to first see how God hates injustice and loves, loves justice. And so verse 2, it says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Just a quick word on tablets. This was just the normal medium in those times to write down something for all to see, something, a clear record of something. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Take note, God is not sheepish in his answer to this very difficult question, it seems. And God is answering not just for Habakkuk's sake, but for all of our sakes who have this same question. And God tells Habakkuk to write down this vision of judgment against Babylon that God will bring one day. The phrase, the, the, phrase, the meaning of the one, that he may run who reads it is, is not entirely clear. It's uh, hard to translate and to interpret. But some commentators think he may be referencing just people who pass by and read it could then pass it on to others, or it's a message for a herald to bring uh, as a message to more people. Again, the main point is that God is telling Habakkuk to write this down, make it clear, I will fulfill this vision, this judgment upon Babylon. And he continues in verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And here in these words, we see the most important thing to start from, which is that God points to his own faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. He promises that this vision of judgment against Babylon, which is Habakkuk's complaint at this time, how could you use Babylon to bring justice when Babylon is so evil? And God is saying, I will be faithful to my promises. But it is in his time. God has set out a vision in scripture of how he will act how he will bring justice in the course of human history and that he will be faithful to accomplish it in his time. Yet God says, he says to him, to God, it is like it is hastening to its end. But to us humans, it seems very slow. Seems like God is delaying. God recognizes that that will be our reality, that it seems like it is very slow for God to fulfill his promises. And yet God does promise that Babylon will one day be judged. And I'm sure for those who are listening to this in Habakkuk's time, hearing these words from the prophet Habakkuk, uh, words from God, I'm sure they felt like God's answer to their question is not coming quick enough for them. 
clearly we know God's sense of time is going to be very different from our sense of time. When God promises to fulfill something, we hope and wish that it will happen right now, or maybe tomorrow, or even next week, God, that would be okay. We're very impatient to see God fulfill his promises. And yet often the promises of God do take longer than that. They can take maybe a few years. Some of the promises in scripture are fulfilled after a whole generation goes by for God's people. And for us, we see promises made about Babylon. Now, not the nation anymore, but Babylon as representative of all evil that yes, one day, all evil will be eradicated, and that is God's promise to us. And we are very impatient to see that day come. We long for it, and we wait for it in a broken world, and it feels slow, it feels delayed, it feels like maybe God is not going to come through after all. We live like Habakkuk did, in between times, for us, we are in between Christ's first coming, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and for his return when he will finish his work of eradicating all evil. I don't know, okay, raise your hand. Oh, this is an interesting poll. If you watch This Is Us, it's okay if you don't. Okay, This Is Us. All right, This Is Us. Okay, not enough hands to make this really stick, unfortunately, <laughs> unless you're just ashamed to admit you, you watch This Is Us. This is a show right now that's quite popular, but it's basically tracing the life of a family. And I was kind of annoyed within the beginning when I first started watching it. My wife convinced me that I would like it because it was like they would show different time frames in this family's life. And it would just jump back and forth. Like, okay, here's when they were a family with young kids. And here's when they were dating. And here's when they're the future time when you know their kids are grown up and adults. And it's just shifting back and forth, right? Pieces of their life in different generations that you see. And, you know, of course, they bring it all back together brilliantly at some point. And it's one of those shows that makes you cry. And, you know, it just does a really good job of, of all of that. And it's interesting to me when you watch something like that, where you're not watching it chronologically. It's not like you start from the beginning of their life and slowly go through their life story. But you're seeing bits of pieces of their life. Back and forth, past, present, future. Who can even say what is past, present, or future? There's really no center point to make a reference to past, present, or future. It's just different times of their life, bits and pieces of scenes of their life that you see, and somehow it all fits together. And really, it was my wife who pointed this out, and she said, it's kind of like probably how God sees things. He sees the whole picture. He sees all these scenes of our lives, and it's all like present to him. But to us, it just feels so slow, and we don't know how to piece it together until God finally does piece it together to show us what it's like. It's difficult for us to trust in the midst of God's timing in this world. We want answers right away, and yet God reassures us. I, I know it's hard. Like talking to our children sometimes, right? To wait for the good thing that's coming. Yes, Christmas Day will come, I promise. Still 25 days away. I know it's a, a while, but it will come. And God says, yes, it will come. I will fulfill my promises. Be patient. But he goes on in this text. 
he goes on to reassure in a very specific way. He goes immediately to it in verse 4. Behold, his soul, his, referring to Babylon, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. God quickly goes to reassuring us that he will do his work by essentially going on indicting Babylon for what Babylon has done, pointing out very specifically the injustices that Babylon has, has and will commit. It haven't even happened yet in this text. God is saying, I, 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 will, I see it. I'm not fooled by it. I hate injustice, and I will hold them accountable. In verse 5, he goes on, again, talking about Babylon and what Babylon is like. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant, arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This picture of Babylon just gobbling up nations around him just for his own benefit. And he goes on to indict Babylon with these five woes. Um, and God, again, is denouncing Babylon for these five particular ways in which Babylon existed. And I'm, I'm not going to go into it. I'm just going to point it out as what those five particular things are, but um, just use it in alliteration just to help you. But So mostly these are, I think they're all M's. I think I did end up squeezing five M's in here. But verses six to eight. Uh, says this, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. He's talking about, God is talking about how Babylon is extorting money from people, money extorted from others for their own sake. And we, I mean, the Bible has talked about this for eons. We still see it today. Just think of payday loans, right? It's so tempting when you can't pay a bill, and you know if you don't pay that bill, you're going to lose your car, you're going to lose your phone, you're going to get homeless. Well, there's payday loans. They're willing to give me money, right? And there's all this fine print that you may or may not have read, and even if you read it, you're like, well, what choice do I have? I don't want to be on the street, but the interest rates are exorbitant, right? And you just get into a deeper and deeper hole. This is what God is denouncing thousands of years ago. The pledges he's referring to here is you take something as collateral. That's what they did. They took something as collateral. And if you couldn't pay back, then, well, okay, I keep my collateral. Right? But it was exorbitant. And God indicts Babylon for that. Verses 9 through 11. Um, it says, woe to him who gains evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of others. Is this idea of like gaining wealth, not just for the sake of gaining wealth, but for the sake of almost like being like monopoly, like being a monopoly, right? Having this security, this power, this protection, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of your legacy, for the sake of your dynasty, for the sake of your family. It's riches as a way of protection against the hardships of life. I, I, I listened to this comedic bit recently about Monopoly, and I thought it was quite funny, right? How all of us, probably all of us, because Monopoly has been around so long as a game, all of us have played Monopoly growing up. And it is funny to think, Monopoly is a white-collar crime, and we are teaching our children from age five 
to commit white collar crime. Like, what is up with that? Yes, please aspire to commit crime and get jailed for it. God is indicting Babylon for this kind of desire for power at the expense of others. Herodotus said that Babylon had a huge wall with 100 bronze gates and that the, 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 the wall was wide enough that you could run a four-horse chariot around that wall, uh, on top of that wall, is what he means, right? They were building these amazing structures. We forget how highly technological they were even back then that what they could accomplish and often for their own glory and God calls out how they did these things at the expense of others verses 12 through 14 God indicts Babylon for having might to the point of violence of others woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity he goes on the next verses to call out meaningless and shameless partying. It's hard to tell if he's actually talking about just drinking and getting drunk and getting naked as a result, or he's just pointing it out as, as, as like a metaphor for being willing to put your neighbors through such a thing just for kicks. And this, this is, I mean, I'm not a partier. I've just never been a partier. Well, I played rugby in college, and... That's as close to parting as I got because I wanted, to be a, I wanted to get to know my teammates, but it was difficult because every time they partied, it had to involve drinking and somehow ended up with people without clothes on. I don't know why it always had to end up that way. And it was just hard to want to go be. It's like, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I don't mind having a drink, but like going out and partying that way, I don't understand it. But God is pointing out the shamelessness of willing not only yourself, to, but to put others through it just for laughs, just for, this, just for kicks. And God ends with indicting Babylon in verses 18 through 20 by pointing out their worship of mute idols, mute idol worship. Just pointing out the ridiculousness of worshiping these wooden or metal carved images that they made with their own hands. Why would you trust this wooden metal thing to do something from you when you made it yourself? Are you not God over that thing because you made it? Sounds silly to us. I thought about bringing a huge pile of money here, but it just ended up being too much trouble. I, I was thinking like, how many ones would the bank give me if I went to the bank? Because uh, yeah, that's about all I could afford is you know, maybe a huge pile of ones. But... Uh, it's the same thing for us. Our society loves money. We made it. We made money. And it's actually not even a thing, right? We know this. I was an economics major. It's just a social construct for how we do transactions. It doesn't actually have any value. And don't get me started on Bitcoin. But anyway, <laughs> uh, someone tried to explain Bitcoin to me, and I still don't understand it, so maybe I shouldn't make fun of it. But we worship these things that we make. We still do that. We put so much value on these things that we made ourselves. How can it bring meaning, life, purpose? How can it be God 
for us when we are actually gods over it. We made it. God is calling that out as well. Although the main purpose of God's words here is to denounce injustice in Babylon, to indict them, and to reassure Israel that God is a God who hates injustice and loves justice, it still is a reminder that God is the definer of what is right and wrong. And that is words that, yes, all nations need to hear, but also the people of God. And we have to look at these five M's and think, how do I fall prey to these things as well, like Babylon did? And to be willing to then submit to God, the God who is the definer of right and wrong, and to have our own lives challenged by God in that. I heard Barack Obama repeat recently this quote that is well known by Martin Luther King Jr., who said, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I I don't know Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology super well, but I do think it is true, the sentiment expressed here. Except the arc of the moral universe is God himself. God is long-suffering. It's such an appropriate old word to use in this case. God is long-suffering, but he will bring justice. God will bring justice. The arc of the moral universe is long but bends towards justice. That is, God is long-suffering and will bring justice one day. And so our cause for justice, if we are so inclined to it, is grounded in our hope in God. But our longing for justice should also make us look at our own hearts, our own lives, to see, can we stand before God ourselves as we cry out injustice around us? And God reminds us in this little verse that has become a cornerstone for so much important theology in the New Testament. Verse 4b, but the righteous shall live by faith. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And so living by faith is trusting in God, not just, hey, just just trust God. It's not meant to be a trite thing. It's trust God in his character, in his timing, in his method, and his glory. And I'm just going to point out how we have talked about some of those things already. We've seen God's character come through in what he has said already, that he is faithful to his promise, that he is a God who hates injustice, that he is a God who loves justice, that he is a God who indicts those who are wrong. He is the God who reassures those who are following him and seek his purposes. We have seen that God is a God who calls us to trust his timing, that he is at work, that in his appointed time, justice will come without delay. And in fact, to him, it is like it is hastening to that day, and yet he waits with great patience because he longs for more and more to come to know him. We have seen God say, not necessarily right here, but in Habakkuk so far, to trust his methods. We may not like how God somehow uses evil for good. We may still want to accuse God as being guilty in some way for being able to use evil for good, and yet God reassures us he is perfectly good, He is perfectly in control and that even evil can be used somehow for his purposes. But there are are two other key texts here in this five woe section that point to who God is and point to his glory specifically. This section 
on the five woes actually can be broken up neatly into two sections, and both sections uh, end with a summary statement of God's glory in verse 14 and verse 20. Verse 14 says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this verse is a slight adaptation of what Isaiah says in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. And God changes Isaiah's reference to add this word glory with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In the Isaiah version, it just says the knowledge of the Lord. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that one little change, God is pointing to the fulfillment of his promises, the end times of how his glory will be made known all over the earth, all over the universe. God brings Habakkuk's mind and our minds back to the purposes of which God is working towards, his glory. And in verse 20, it says this, but the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. Here he comes right after he indicts Babylon for worshiping mute idols. And he's contrasting these mute idols made again by the very hands of worshipers themselves. He's contrasting that with the almighty living God. And he compares this, he's painting this picture of how we can, as people bring our frenetic activity and energy to worshiping mute idols. And yet what it should be contrasted with is coming before the living, speaking, almighty God, coming reverently, silently in worship of him because he is the one who speaks and things happen. He is not like a politician who speaks and maybe things will happen or not. God speaks and things happen. God is true to his word. He is painting this picture of the fulfillment of his original design, the fulfillment of his promises that the earth will be his temple and he will dwell in this temple when all evil has been eradicated from it, where he, the perfectly holy God, can dwell with his followers in all glory forever and ever. God cares far more than we do about accomplishing this. So we can put our trust in him even when we're doubting and hurting that he will be true to his word because, again, he cares far more for his glory than we do ourselves, and he will make this vision come true in the appointed time. So living by faith for us, which is commended as, those, as the way the righteous live, is about, again, trusting God and God's promises in the darkest times. Trusting him and his promises, even when we know that we ourselves cannot stand before him in our own righteousness, just like Israel couldn't, just like Habakkuk couldn't. We trust him because we know he is faithful and just and good and loving and worthy of our praise. Habakkuk highlights God's character even as God answers Habakkuk's complaint. And we have to ask this. Are promises God make, are God's promises like politicians' promises? Just pause for a moment. Are God's promises like a politician's promises? We all know the answer is no. 
God is always true to his word because his word is truth and his word is power. A politician's promise is like, "Ah, I hope I can accomplish it. And in my finiteness, I will do my best. For God, there's no difference between what he says, what what he does, and who he is. And yet, when we look at our lives, if you're involved in politics in any way, we are always tempted to trust the politician's promises far more than God's. Maybe because they seem more tangible. Maybe because we can relate to them as people. But God's promises are ones that will be true always and will be fulfilled by him. And God points us again with this little phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. He points us to how this promise is fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself. That the promise that was made even as far back in Abraham, Genesis 15, where Abraham believed the Lord, it says, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Trusting Lord, the Lord even in the darkest time is faith. And that is our righteousness. Trusting in God and his character. And the Apostle Paul builds upon this foundation to show us we are not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because we are faithful. We are not saved because we are able. We are not saved because we care so much about justice. We are not saved because we have a life put together. We're saved because of faith in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is the one who has fulfilled God's character of hating injustice and loving justice on the cross. He loved us so much that he'd be willing to die for all the wrongs we have done, past, present, and future. And not just us, but for those who will come after us. Again, it is where justice and mercy kiss. And we see God's character come out in full, that he'd be willing to humble himself so that one day he may be glorified in the fullness of his promises. Romans 1.17, which you heard read earlier, says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that that no one is justified before God by the law, by doing the right things, because we can never do enough of the right things. We're not justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We live by faith, brothers and sisters. We live by faith in dark times, trusting in the God who will fulfill his promises, trusting that God is with us, in us, walking with us. He has not abandoned us. He has not fallen asleep. He has not stopped being at work to fulfill his promises. And he calls us to trust. And yes, it involves faith. It involves submitting to who God is. Because we know that we ourselves cannot answer our own questions of our cry out against injustice. We need a God who is bigger, mightier, much more loving than we are to fulfill this promise. So I call you, just as I call myself, to live by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, trusting that he will bring it to an end.